Section 29 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1F, Section 29, Chapter 68, Part 3. The commons, though they conducted the great business of the exclusion with extreme violence, and even imprudence, had yet such reason for the jealousy which gave rise to it. But their vehement prosecution of the popish plot, even after so long an interval, discovers such a spirit, either of credulity or injustice, as admits of no apology. The impeachment of the Catholic lords in the Tower was revived, and as Viscount Stafford, from his age, infirmities, and narrow capacity, was deemed the least capable of defending himself, it was determined to make him the first victim, that his condemnation might pave the way for a sentence against the rest. The Chancellor, now created Earl of Nottingham, was appointed High Steward for conducting the trial. Three witnesses were produced against the prisoner, Oates, Dugdale, and Turberville. Oates swore that he saw Fenwick the Jesuit deliver to Stafford a commission signed by D'Oliva, general of the Jesuits, appointing him paymaster to the papal army, which was to be levied for the subduing of England, for this ridiculous imposture still maintained its credit with the commons. Dugdale gave testimony that the prisoner at Tixall, a seat of Lord Ashton's, had endeavored to engage him in the design of murdering the king, and had promised him, besides the honor of being sainted by the church, a reward of five hundred pounds for that service. Turberville deposed that the prisoner in his own house at Paris had made him a like proposal, to offer money for murdering a king without laying down any scheme by which the assassin may ensure some probability or possibility of escape, is so incredible in itself, and may so easily be maintained by any prostitute evidence, that an accusation of that nature, not accompanied with circumstances, ought very little to be attended to by any court of judicature. But notwithstanding the small hold which the witnesses afforded, the prisoner was able, in many material particulars, to discredit their testimony. It was sworn by Dugdale that Stafford had assisted in the great consult of the Catholics held at Tixall. But Stafford proved by undoubted testimony that at the time assigned he was in Bath, and in that neighborhood. Turberville had served a novitiate among the Dominicans, but having deserted the convent, he had enlisted as a trooper in the French army, and being dismissed that service, he now lived in London, abandoned by all his relations, and exposed to great poverty. Stafford proved, by the evidence of his gentleman and his page, that Turberville had never, either at Paris or at London, been seen in his company, and it might justly appear strange that a person who had so important a secret in his keeping was so long entirely neglected by him. 
the clamor and outrage of the populace during the trial were extreme great abilities and eloquence were displayed by the managers sir william jones sir francis winnington and sergeant maynard yet did the prisoner under all these disadvantages make a better defence than was expected either by his friends or his enemies the unequal contest in which he was engaged was a plentiful source of compassion to every mind seasoned with humanity he represented that during a course of forty years from the very commencement of the civil wars he had through many dangers difficulties and losses still maintained his loyalty and it was credible that now in his old age easy in his circumstances but dispirited by infirmities he would belie the whole course of his life and engage against his royal master from whom he had ever received kind treatment in the most desperate and most bloody of all conspiracies he remarked the infamy of the witnesses the contradictions and absurdities of their testimony the extreme indigence in which they had lived though engaged as they pretended in a conspiracy with kings princes and nobles the credit and opulence to which they were at present raised with a simplicity and tenderness more persuasive than the greatest oratory he still made protestations of his innocence and could not forbear every moment expressing the most lively surprise and indignation at the audacious impudence of the witnesses it will appear astonishing to us as it did to stafford himself that the peers after a solemn trial of six days should by a majority of twenty-four voices give sentence against him he received however with resignation the fatal verdict god's holy name be praised was the only exclamation which he uttered when the high steward told him that the peers would intercede with the king for remitting the more cruel and ignominious parts of the sentence hanging and quartering he burst into tears but he told the lords that he was moved to this weakness by his sense of their goodness not by any terror of that fate which he was doomed to suffer it is remarkable that after charles as is usual in such cases had remitted to stafford the hanging and quartering the two sheriffs bethel and cornish indulging their own republican humor and complying with the prevalent spirit of their party over jealous of monarchy started a doubt with regard to the king's power of exercising even this small degree of lenity since he cannot pardon the whole said they how can he have power to remit any part of the sentence they proposed the doubt to both houses the peers pronounced it superfluous and even the commons apprehensive lest a question of this nature might make way for stafford's escape gave this singular answer this house is content that the sheriffs do execute william late viscount stafford by severing his head from his body only nothing can be a stronger proof of the fury of the times than that lord russell notwithstanding the virtue and humanity of his character seconded in the house this barbarous scruple of the sheriffs in the interval between the sentence and execution many efforts were made to shake the resolution of the infirm and aged prisoner and to bring him to some confession of the treason for which he was condemned 
it was even rumored that he had confessed and the zealous partymen who no doubt had secretly notwithstanding their credulity entertained some doubts with regard to the reality of the popish conspiracy expressed great triumph on the occasion but stafford when again called before the house of peers discovered many schemes which had been laid by himself and others for procuring a toleration to the catholics at least a mitigation of the penal laws enacted against them and he protested that this was the sole treason of which he had ever been guilty stafford now prepared himself for death with the intrepidity which became his birth and station and which was the natural result of the innocence and integrity which during the course of a long life he had ever maintained his mind seemed even to collect new force from the violence and oppression under which he labored when going to execution he called for a cloak to defend himself against the rigor of the season perhaps said he i may shake with cold but i trust in god not for fear on the scaffold he continued with reiterated and earnest asseverations to make protestations of his innocence all his fervor was exercised on that point when he mentioned the witnesses whose perjuries had bereaved him of life his expressions were full of mildness and of charity he solemnly disavowed all those immoral principles which overzealous protestants had ascribed without distinction to the church of rome and he hoped he said that the time was now approaching when the present delusion would be dissipated and when the force of truth though late would engage the whole world to make reparation to his injured honor the populace who had exulted at stafford's trial and condemnation were now melted into tears at the sight of that tender fortitude which shone forth in each feature and motion and accent of this aged noble their profound silence was only interrupted by sighs and groans with difficulty they found speech to assent to those protestations of innocence which he frequently repeated we believe you my lord god bless you my lord these expressions with a faltering accent flowed from them the executioner himself was touched with sympathy twice he lifted up the axe with an intent to strike the fatal blow and as often felt his resolution to fail him a deep sigh was heard to accompany his last effort which laid stafford forever at rest all the spectators seemed to feel the blow and when the head was held up to them with the usual cry this is the head of a traitor no clamor of assent was uttered pity remorse and astonishment had taken possession of every heart and displayed itself in every countenance this is the last blood which was shed on account of the popish plot an incident which for the credit of the nation it were better to bury in eternal oblivion but which it is necessary to perpetuate as well as to maintain the truth of history as to warn if possible their posterity and all mankind 
never again to fall into so shameful, so barbarous a delusion. The execution of Stafford gratified the prejudices of the country party, but it contributed nothing to their power and security. On the contrary, by exciting commiseration, it tended still further to increase the disbelief of the whole plot, which began now to prevail. The commons, therefore, not to lose the present opportunity, resolved to make both friends and enemies sensible of their power. They passed a bill for easing the Protestant dissenters, and for repealing the persecuting statute of the 35th of Elizabeth. This laudable bill was likewise carried through the House of Peers. The Chief Justice was very obnoxious for dismissing the grand jury in an irregular manner, and thereby disappointing that bold measure of Shaftesbury and his friends, who had presented the Duke as a recusant. For this crime the Commons sent up an impeachment against him, as also against Jones and Weston, two of the judges who, in some speeches from the bench, had gone so far as to give to many of the first reformers the appellation of fanatics. The king, in rejecting the exclusion bill, had sheltered himself securely behind the authority of the House of Peers, and the Commons had been deprived of the usual pretense to attack the sovereign himself under color of attacking his ministers and counsellors. In prosecution, however, of the scheme which he had formed, of throwing the blame on the Commons in case of any rupture, he made them a new speech. After warning them, that a neglect of this opportunity would never be retrieved, he added these words, I did promise you the fullest satisfaction which your hearts could wish, for the security of the Protestant religion, and to concur with you in any remedies which might consist with preserving the succession of the crown in its due and legal course of descent. I do again, with the same reservations, renew the same promises to you, and being thus ready on my part to do all that can reasonably be expected from me, I should be glad to know from you, as soon as may be, how far I shall be assisted by you, and what it is you desire from me. The most reasonable objection against the limitations proposed by the king is that they introduced too considerable an innovation in the government and almost totally annihilated the power of the future monarch. But considering the present disposition of the commons and their leaders, we may fairly presume that this objection would have small weight with them, and that their disgust against the court would rather incline them to diminish than support regal authority. They still hoped, from the king's urgent necessities and his usual facility, that he would throw himself wholly into their hands, and that thus, without waiting for the accession of the duke, they might immediately render themselves absolute masters of the government. The commons, therefore, besides insisting still on the exclusion, proceeded to bring in bills of an important, and some of them of an alarming nature. One, to renew the Triennial Act which had been so inadvertently repealed in the beginning of the reign, a second to make the office of judge during good behavior, a third to declare the levying of money without consent of Parliament to be high treason, 
a fourth, to order an association for the safety of his majesty's person, for defense of the Protestant religion, for the preservation of the Protestant subjects against all invasions and opposition whatsoever, and for preventing the Duke of York, or any papist, from succeeding to the crown. The memory of the covenant was too recent for men to overlook the consequences of such an association, and the king, who was particularly conversant in Davila, could not fail of recollecting a memorable foreign instance to fortify this domestic experience. The commons also passed many votes which, though they had not the authority of laws, served, however, to discover the temper and disposition of the house. They voted that whoever had advised his majesty to refuse the exclusion bill were promoters of popery and enemies to the king and kingdom. In another vote, they named the Marquis of Worcester, the Earls of Clarendon, Feversham, and Halifax, Lawrence Hyde and Edward Seymour, as those dangerous enemies, and they requested his majesty to remove them from his person and councils forever. They voted that, till the exclusion bill were passed, they could not, consistent with the trust reposed in them, grant the king any manner of supply and lest he should be enabled by any other expedient to support the government and preserve himself independent they passed another vote in which they declared that whoever should hereafter lend by way of advance any money upon those branches of the king's revenue arising from customs excise or hearth money should be judged a hinderer of the sitting of parliament and be responsible for the same in Parliament. The king might presume that the peers, who had rejected the exclusion bill, would still continue to defend the throne, and that none of the dangerous bills introduced into the other house would ever be presented for the royal assent and approbation. But as there remained no hopes of bringing the commons to any better temper, and as their further sitting served only to keep faction alive, and to perpetuate the general ferment of the nation, he came secretly to a resolution of proroguing them. They got intelligence about a quarter of an hour before the black rod came to their door. Not to lose such precious time, they passed, in a tumultuous manner, some extraordinary resolutions. They voted that whosoever advised his majesty to prorogue this parliament to any other purpose than in order to pass the bill of exclusion, was a betrayer of the king, of the Protestant religion, and of the kingdom of England, a promoter of the French interest, and a pensioner of France, that thanks be given to the city of London for their manifest loyalty, and for their care and vigilance in the preservation of the king and of the Protestant religion. That it is the opinion of this house, that that city was burned in the year 1666 by the Papist, designing thereby to introduce arbitrary power and popery into the kingdom. That humble application be made to his majesty for restoring the Duke of Monmouth to all his offices and commands, from which, it appears to the house, he had been removed by the influence of the Duke of York, and that it is the opinion of the House that the prosecution of the Protestant dissenters upon the penal laws is at this time grievous to the subject. 
a weakening of the Protestant interest, an encouragement of popery, and dangerous to the peace of the kingdom. The king passed some laws of no great importance, but the bill for repealing the 35th of Elizabeth he privately ordered the clerk of the crown not to present to him. By this artifice, which was equally disobliging to the country party as if the bill had been rejected, and at the same time implied some timidity in the king, that salutary act was for the present eluded. The king had often of himself attempted, and sometimes by irregular means, to give indulgence to nonconformists. But besides that he had usually expected to comprehend the Catholics in this liberty, the present refractory disposition of the sectaries had much incensed him against them, and he was resolved, if possible, to keep them still at mercy. The last votes of the Commons seemed to be an attempt of forming indirectly an association against the Crown, after they found that their association bill could not pass. The dissenting interest, the city, and the Duke of Monmouth, they endeavored to connect with the country party. A civil war indeed never appeared so likely as at present, and it was high time for the king to dissolve a parliament which seemed to have entertained such dangerous projects. Soon after, he summoned another. Though he observed that the country party had established their interests so strongly in all the electing boroughs, that he could not hope for any disposition more favorable in the new Parliament, this expedient was still a prosecution of his former project of trying every method by which he might form an accommodation with the Commons. And if all failed, he hoped that he could the better justify to his people, at least to his party, a final breach with them. It had always been much regretted by the Royalists during the Civil Wars that the Long Parliament had been assembled at Westminster, and had thereby received force and encouragement from the vicinity of a potent and factious city, which had zealously embraced their party. Though the King was now possessed of guards, which in some measure overawed the populace, he was determined still further to obviate all inconveniences, and he summoned the new Parliament to meet at Oxford. The City of London showed how just a judgment he had formed of their dispositions. Besides re-electing the same members, they voted thanks to them for their former behavior, in endeavoring to discover the depth of the horrid and hellish Popish plot, and to exclude the Duke of York, the principal cause of the ruin and misery impending over the nation. Monmouth, with fifteen peers, presented a petition against assembling the Parliament at Oxford, where the two houses, they said, could not be in safety, but would be easily exposed to the swords of the Papists and their adherents, of whom too many had crept into His Majesty's guards. These insinuations, which pointed so evidently at the King himself, were not calculated to persuade him, but to inflame the people. The exclusionists might have concluded, both from the king's dissolution of the last Parliament and from his summoning of the present to meet at Oxford, that he was determined to maintain his declared resolution of rejecting their favorite bill. 
but they still flattered themselves that his urgent necessities would influence his easy temper and finally gain them the ascendant the leaders came to parliament attended not only by their servants but by numerous bands of their partisans the four city members in particular were followed by great multitudes wearing ribbons in which were woven these words no popery no slavery the king had his guards regularly mustered his party likewise endeavored to make a show of their strength and on the whole the assembly at oxford rather bore the appearance of a tumultuous polish diet than of a regular english parliament end of section twenty nine chapter sixty eight part three recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n voice dot com